I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we introduce important new ideas in business and authors along with their new books and papers. Today, we're going to be talking about what I consider to be a very important paper for business, which is one coming up for publication shortly called Economic Factors Underlying Biodiversity Loss by Duskupter and Levin. And this follows another important paper, a report for the UK government on the economics of biodiversity from 2021, also by Dasgupta. As the title implies, the paper deals with how our economic systems are interwoven with nature, the natural impact of our economic activity, how we can achieve sustainable prosperity, how we can measure our impact on natural systems and how we can potentially manage that impact in terms of conceptualizing it and having the right policies and measures. I think this is a really important thing today because business is increasingly focused on sustainability, but nowadays mainly on the climate aspect. And I think this is a, a new frontier in sustainability. So I'm delighted to introduce our guests today, Sapatha Dasgupta and Simon Levin, who are co-authors of the aforementioned paper, and also Georg Kell. So just to say a word about each of them, although they really don't need any introduction to anyone in the field, Sapatha Dasgupta is the Frank Ramsey Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Cambridge, and he is an expert on all sorts of aspects of development economics and economics and nature. And he'll be talking about the economic aspects of today's topic. And then we have Simon Levin, the James MacDonald Distinguished Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Princeton. And he'll be commenting on the ecological and nature-based implications of today's topic. And then we're joined by uh, Georg Kell, who is the, the founding director of the United Nations Global Compact, the world's largest corporate sustainability organization. That's what he used to do. He's now chairman of the sustainable asset management and data company Arabesque. And uh, he'll be referring to the business implications of today's topic. So thank you for joining me, Partha Simon and Georg. And let's jump in. So Partha, if I could address you first with a question. So the central topic here is how our economic progress is impacting nature. How are we impacting nature, specifically biodiversity? Oh, in an extremely adverse way. That's the bottom line. And the question really is, why? Why have we come to this pass? And it has to do with, in part, by the way, we think of economic progress and the, the central metric we use we're judging the progress or regress of economies, whether it's a village economy, national economy, or the world as a whole, bypasses nature altogether. The metric is GDP, gross domestic product. In the global context, it'll be the whole world's domestic product. And that's, if you remember, it's the market value of the final goods and services that we consume. And it does not take in to account the depreciation of capital assets that accompanies economic activity. GDP, the rogue term in it is G, gross. It's not net. So you could have an economy which is growing in GDP and you think all is well, but the unmeasured depreciation of natural capital in particular, because it can be depreciated as fast as you like, depending on how how much material objects you have to, to do that, say, for example, chainsaws and bulldozers and so forth, but that will be unrecorded. So the first thing is that, that we have the wrong measure. 
Very good. So let's dig into the, the measurement problem later, but maybe just sort of survey the problem at a high level first of all. So Simon, coming on to you, in the paper, you make a very in- interesting distinction between natural goods and natural services. Could you tell us what you mean by those two things? Well, there are lots of things that one could interpret as goods, but what we really need to translate are, are the way these impact our usage and the sustainability of our way of life. These are the services that it provides. And these services come in a number of different forms. Some of them are obvious to it because they have market prices. They include things that we utilize like food, fiber, fuel, and pharmaceuticals. But there are also indirect benefits that are services like the mediation of climate, the sequestration of toxic material, etc. And importantly, there are aesthetic and sorts of dimensions that need to be protected as well. These are all things we enjoy about nature, they impact our lives. And so it's not just the goods that we take out of it, but it's these other indirect services that are perhaps even more important to us. Right. So that's a great concept to natural goods and services. Can we measure those things, Partha? Yes and no. In part, there are plenty of things that can be measured. And in future, many of them will be included. One reason I'm balking slightly is that this is really new. People haven't tried doing it. I mean, if you think of GDP, it's had now an 80-year history. Every country has invested money to train people to try and estimate the stuff that goes into the construction of GDP. So we are at a very infant stage with regard to Mother Nature's goods and services. Okay, Some of them can certainly be done quite easily, actually, if you put some money into it, you know, train people. Say, take a mangrove, for example. The mangroves offers huge numbers of services, amongst which, for example, would be the protection that they afford to neighboring villages against storms. They are a source of timber. They're a nursery for fish. Now, you can try and estimate the value of those services and then work backwards, add them up to see what the mangrove does for the human population and so forth. You can do that with wetlands. You can do that for coastal fisheries. And forests, obviously, they're timber and pharmaceuticals and everything. So, yes, the answer is yes. And again, similarly, in some ways, the answer is, in some parts, no. Because many of these services are silent and invisible. Think of all the stuff that's happening deep in the oceans, deep in the rainforests, deep in underground in the soils. And their visible signatures are what we can measure, but not the invisible linkages that are pervasive in the medium in which they exist. Thank you for that. So, Georg, business, is this biodiversity issue and this natural impact issue on the, on the radar screens of business, do you think? And do you think it needs to be? Well, first, it absolutely needs to be. By some estimates from the United Nations, for example, 50% of business activities depend more or less directly on nature services and arguably 100% depend on on the healthy environment over time. So the argument in principle is understood, but the response by business has been modest, I may say, so far. But in certain areas, quite distinct, for example, on water management, companies have early recognized already 20 years ago to build water coalitions to preserve water because as an essential impact. Recently, we all have seen how carbon emissions increasingly are the subject of serious strategic reviews with almost 3,000 corporates now 
pledging to go net zero, reducing emissions on the air. But the holistic concept of nature as the underlying value for economic activity is not really understood in a comprehensive way. So you see it in bits and pieces here on, on emissions because there's a risk of them being increasingly priced. You see it on water as essential. In agriculture, food production, we see movements. Regenerative agriculture is now becoming a big subject. And we see it also in the carbon offset market where there's a potential for pricing nature services. Of course, governments have, are pursuing that too. So in sum, I would say absolutely necessary for risk and opportunity management and sustainable long-term growth, but response is so far modest. Thank you for that, Georg. So let's dig in a little bit into some of the details. Simon, do you, do you think that any damage we've done to natural systems is irreversible? And related to that, do you think there's some sort of threshold, some sort of point of no return? And given the measurement difficulties that Partha talked about, how would we know that we're, we're close to that? You raise a number of interesting questions. There's a lot of discussion, first of all, about planetary boundaries and what that would mean. These are controversial, but undoubtedly there are limits to what we can sustain. In effect, there are, there are certainly changes that are irreversible. When you lose species, you're not going to get them back. If coral reefs continue to collapse, that's a fundamental change. When forests get converted into grasslands, maybe the forests can be restored, but the timescale in which they would be restored is so long that we may not see the benefits for a long time. And there's the potential for cascading shifts. So the whole question of critical transitions and everything from the loss of genetic diversity within species to the loss of species to the loss of whole ecosystems to even non-biodiversity related issues like changes in the global circulation patterns of the oceans are things that we have to be worried about. And just like with financial markets, it's important to look for early warning indicators. And we see those early indicators. You can think of the provisioning services that we discuss in our paper as hidden variables in that they're less obvious. And in any dynamical system of this sort, there are going to be hidden variables that we may or may not be able to detect like the loss of biodiversity. As we lose biodiversity, we may be losing the adaptive capacity of systems, and we may not be aware of it. These are the sorts of measurements that we have to be emphasizing. Okay. And presumably, you, you see a focus on climate, which business is very much focused on today, as being too narrow to cover all of the issues that we're talking about here? Or do we, in fact, look after biodiversity by looking after climate? It's a deep question. I think it's unfortunate that we have been concentrating on one service that Mother Nature offers us, which is climate regulation. There is a whole bunch of other services, some of which Simon alluded to before, say, for example, decomposition of waste, nitrogen fixation, and so forth. The key thing to observe here is that they are complements of each other. They're complementary to one another. They are not substitutable. So you can't say, like you might do for economic goods, well, if you can't have enough of climate regulation, well, let's go for nitrogen fixation, and that will substitute to, to sustain our well-being. That's not on. Nature is not a house of cards, but we can sure we're so smart nowadays and so large, we can convert her into a house of cards. Having said that, there is a point that needs emphasis. We have seen tipping points. It's not as though when we think about the world as a whole, the globe as a whole, you, you think planetary boundaries and there are 
tipping point sitting out there, transitions sitting out there, but we haven't reached them. But at the local level, plenty of communities have been wiped out, historically, for example. Okay, And that's happened because their local ecosystems have collapsed. And paleo historians have plenty of records of that happening. And today, if you go to the drylands of sub-Saharan Africa, central India, you will find distress migration, which can be traced to the collapse of their local ecosystem. So it seems to me that uh, studying the local is a very good way of trying to figure out what might lie ahead at the global level. So let's come to the, um, one of the conceptual sort of common denominators of your paper, which is this concept of inclusive wealth. So you're, you're proposing a way of reconciling, if I get this right, economic capital and services with human capital and services with natural capital and services using a concept of inclusive wealth. Could you explain to us what is inclusive wealth and how does that differ from something like GDP? Well, first of all, GDP is a flow, so many dollars per year. And as I said, it doesn't include depreciation of capital assets. Wealth is a stock, so many dollars worth of assets, period. Okay, so that's the first difference. Household might want to figure out what its wealth is. They'll say, do I own shares? Do I own the house I live in? And, and then present value of the income flow from labor and so forth. And you can construct the notion of private wealth. For an economy, you need to have a notion of wealth. We are urging governments and the national statistical offices to produce wealth figures because like balance sheets of companies, nations ought to know assets that they own, they have access to. And of course, natural capitalism, essential ingredient of it. So inclusive wealth is simply the accounting value, the social worth of all the assets that the economy has access to. And that includes natural capital. And including that is a reason for calling it inclusive wealth, as opposed to simply saying wealth. I know that to you, your paper is about how we can measure this in principle, but can we measure it in practice? I, I noticed that there was a graph in your paper by Managi that purported to show what was happening to financial capital and what was happening to human capital and the degradation in natural capital. And that, that chart seemed to imply that we can measure these things today. Is that, is that a reality or are we still working on how to do the national accounting for, for natural capital? Well, first of all, it will be the natural capital which needs to be done. And the various national statistical organizations, like, for example, in the UK or in China, or in Chile are doing that. They're focusing attention on a completely neglected set of assets. So obviously that's the first port of call. But at the end of the day, we want to be able to merge those asset figures to uh, not financial capital, by the way, it's produced capital. I mean, roads, buildings, machines, and so forth. I'm not including financial capital because financial capital is just a representation of the produced capital, you know, the, the market value of it. So. Yes, it can be done, and it is being done. Very crude estimates. These are early days ahead. United Nations Environment Program now produces a biennial inclusive wealth accounts for 170 countries. Now, totally approximate, and many, many assets are missing. Goes that saying. So the, the diagram that you referred to is very demonstrative of the fact that the economic path that we have followed globally is one in which produced capital has been increasing. We've been investing in that. Human capital has been increasing. We've been investing in that. But natural capital has been degrading. It's been going down. Now, it's the sum of those will give you the movement of inclusive wealth. We didn't do that there. 
But the idea is to show the components, to see that the pattern of economic development has been anti-nature. We've essentially regarded as a free good, and she's not. Martin, could I add something? Yeah, please. I think, and I know Partha will agree with me on this, one of the problems that we're trying to address is that typically, for example, in the, the papers that we refer to on climate change, the view is basically a linear view of the system, that there are these different components, you know, nature's over here, the economy's over here, we can deal with one of them at a time. But indeed, what we're pointing out is these are interconnected, that you can't have GDP growth without taking into account the nonlinear impacts on the other parts of the system. And so the idea of inclusive wealth is to take into account the feedbacks that are the result also. Yes, you're adding them together, but part of the story is that the, the growth in one sector, the growth in, in the regulating services, for example, involves impacts on the provisioning services, et cetera. And it's these interconnections and the interconnectedness in general of the economic system and the, um, and the natural system that has been ignored. That's exactly right. Just to give an illustration, imagine that you build a road and cut through a wetland, which is happening all the time anyway, okay? And in the cost-benefit analysis of the decision which leads to the construction of the road, you haven't reckoned in the damage you're causing the wetland, and therefore the services that the wetland currently offers, which will no longer be available. That's been priced at zero. So you can see the two go in two different directions. The direction of investment that we pursue really goes against the idea of investing in nature, allowing nature to grow. So, Georg, you said it's early days for addressing biodiversity and natural services with, with companies. Your current role with Arabesque, you sort of sit at the center of provisioning services for business, if you like. You're, you're one of the major data suppliers in relation to sustainability. You supply the metrics that investors depend upon, and also you run sustainable asset management. How would you describe the state of play in terms of businesses focused on biodiversity and the most practical path to increase awareness and engagement on this? I think the field is highly dynamic as we speak. The awareness of our dependence on nature is growing. Decision makers are aware that to protect and to safeguard long-term profitability, you need a healthy environmental underpinning. In principle, it's understood. And through the environmental social governance dimension, this integration of externalities into risks and opportunities is actually progressing quite well. And there's a growing number of frameworks which guide capital allocation towards more safer, long-term, more regenerative. It's not perfect. It's a partial answer but it's a bridge into the future. And that field is currently exploding, and that is good so. It's, of course, true that voluntary market-led initiatives by themselves cannot bring about systems change for society as a whole. But it doesn't mean that voluntary approaches, market-led approaches are useless because they prepare the ground for future massive changes, for regulatory changes, policy changes, behavioral changes, preference setting. And in the end, it's about values and valuation. And valuation is changing because the risk dimension of biodiversity collapse and so forth is increasingly recognized. And frameworks for assessing such risks in the future are currently being developed by my own firm, by others as well. 
and they increasingly inform decision makers in that direction. So I would say, yes, it's early day in the holistic perception, but in segments of the natural environment, quite some good progress has been made on water management. For example, I mentioned decarbonization, but on the holistic understanding of of the complementarities of the various systems, there's still a lot of work to be done. But I'm quite confident as disaster is more visible on the radar screen of, of investors and of corporates who depend on natural services, the speed of adaptation will actually accelerate. So we've discussed the problem. We've discussed the conceptualization. We've discussed the measurement. And we may not have the luxury of waiting until we've figured all of those things out before we need to act. So let's, let's talk about solutions probably also in embryonic space. But starting with, with you, Partha, if you think about things that governments can do, things that companies can do to begin to act on this problem of the encroachment on natural systems, what are some of the, the key solution measures that you'd wish to see more of? Right. It depends, of course, on the scale. If you're looking at a village economy, what needs to be done there is different from what happens you know, at the national economy and the global economy goes that saying. These are different and it doesn't require much expertise to know the differences there. But there is a general point that I'd like to emphasize, given what my colleagues have just now said, which is extremely important, arising out of the complementarities. The risks of ecosystem collapse, say in the tropics, which is the source of most of our primary products, which we import, our companies import and then transform into goods which we buy in the supermarkets and so forth. That entire supply chain is shot through with risks. And so the Profitability risks, risk and the rates of return on investment are dependent on the risks of ecosystem collapse. So what does it tell us? It tells us two additional things. First of all, that these ecosystems in the tropics are correlated with one another, the point that Simon has already mentioned. If one ecosystem collapses, then an adjacent one is going to be harmed as well, which means that the risks that the companies, importing companies in the West face are also correlated positively which means that there's a real need for cooperation amongst competing firms over management of their supply sources. That might require, and typically would require, government support. And I think over the past 50 years or so, the political science of the matter in the West has essentially seen the private sector as antagonistic to the state or vice versa. So the idea is always pleading the state to lay the private sector alone. That's the claim, you know, stop regulating us, let us be, and we'll deliver the goods. Now is a time where, in fact, the private sector needs the government to create constraints which tie the hands of the private sector in order to reduce those risks. And I think we really need to have a change in attitude that there is cooperation possibilities across the entire regime to make everybody better off, collective improvement, because of these externalities are really pushing the whole economy down in a dangerous slide. Simon, what would you add in terms of some of the key things that uh, governments and companies need to be doing to address the the damage, potentially or reversal, that that we've been talking about? Well, yeah, let me comment on two of Arthur's points, which I obviously support. One is I'm reminded of the old parable about two of us being in a rowboat together and my not being concerned because the leak in the rowboat is under your seat, not mine. And we have to recognize that if the leak in the rowboat is in some other country, that's going to affect us. And so we have to broaden the scale. And 
we have to think of the global commons. This is the one of the points we make in our paper. We have to think about eliminating environmental subsidies, as uh, Partha was hinting at. And there's a game theoretic problem that's implicit in what Partha was saying, which is if you have a bunch of companies that in principle would be willing to take the step, but none of them is willing to because because the others aren't, you've got to find ways to get cooperation and facilitate these companies. You know, it's, a, it's what we call in game theory, a coordination game in which you want to get to, to the better solution. Our colleague, Lynn Ostrom, began to argue in some of these directions in, in her last work. Unfortunately, she she left us, but we've got to broaden the scale at which we think about things and find ways to enable cooperation that Bartha was talking about. Georg, what would you add in terms of measures you'd wish to see more of from, from government and companies to uh, address the issues we're talking about today? Yeah, I concur with what my colleagues just said. I would argue in addition, from a public policy angle, probably, I mean, two distinct approaches. One is obviously preservation and the recent Montreal agreement on the 3030 is a, probably an important building block because some of the public land needs to be preserved full stop. Otherwise, you know, the collapse cannot be stopped. And now implementing that nationally with support, hopefully, of the private sector is an important point. For the other two-thirds of, of the natural assets out there, this integration and revaluation can only succeed if we grow the coalition significantly. So the front-running investors and corporates are not small voices, but they become the dominant voices. So responsible lobbying, idealistically formulated, becomes a new policy paradigm. I see some other real green shots. Uh, it may sound paradox, but in this unsecure political environment we currently live in, where commodity prices are, are increasing, we see this major shift towards circular economy concepts. That's another response mechanism that has a big promise. It's a whole new paradigm shift in how we think about natural inputs. So no longer just as something we, we extract and process and throw away, but rather something we value over its lifetime and reuse it ever again. So that's another promising approach. Building that further will help too. But basically, more collaboration to overcome this dilemma of the public good is the only way forward. And that applies to state to state and business with business and business with governments. So let me end with something which is bothering me here, a little enigma arising out of what we've been talking about, which is, I think we have a picture that the intersecting webs of ecological services is, is a very complex system to understand and measure. And, and it strikes me that the, the set of solutions and stakeholders that needs to be mobilized here is, is equally complex. You know, essentially, we are saying we need to do a bunch of un unprecedented policy moves, adding on to an already crowded climate agenda, and have cooperation and adherence between stakeholders that have very divided interests in order to solve this problem. So the solutioning here is a quasi-ecological problem in itself. So I'm wondering... How do we solve that problem? And, and what can we learn from our limited successes on massive collective action problems, like, for instance, CFC protocols, fishery agreements, nuclear detente? What can we learn from our limited successes on collective action problems about how we might practically orchestrate this agenda? Any, any thoughts on that, Partha? Uh, inadequate, but that's about the best we can do, given that we're in a new terrain. One reason I have some hopes, one encouraging feature of the economics of biodiversity 
is the fact that unlike climate change, where the benefits are very diffused, and certainly the benefits that I can bring about by my action are effectively zero, but the cost is what I bear. So that there's a huge resistance, if you like, inertia in doing things. It's a straightforward prisoner's dilemma game for the global commons. In biodiversity loss, many of these issues are local, very local. In my garden, in the neighborhood, if there's a park and somebody wants to build additional structures there, I feel bad about it because it affects my well-being and I do something about it. So the, the possibilities of cooperation at the local level, the community level, are very strong. So that's the first point. The second point, I think I feel we are, should be moving in that direction, is that as a result, of course, the local communities, and I don't mean now middle-class households in the West, but I mean village communities in Africa or in of South Asia, they know a heck of a lot more about their ecology than ecologists do, because they can't articulate it in field journals, but they have hundreds of years of experience that have come down through the generations. So using that local knowledge, relying on that local knowledge, allowing that local knowledge to be used for their purposes is something that we ought to be encouraging, governments ought to be encouraging. Unfortunately, it hasn't happened because the direction of movement, at least in the poorer countries, has been towards centralization. And that's been extremely dangerous for Mother Nature in the local level. Simon, how, how can we solve the coordination game as you described it? Yeah, well, following up on what Partha said, starting from the local level, is, I referred to Lynn Ostrom's work before, and her idea was that you build local, in what she called a polycentric governance, local agreements, and local isn't necessarily a geographical thing, and use that as building blocks to global solutions. And secondly, I think, and the reason we're having this conversation with you, and why BCG has been interested in this, is because I think there's more potential for environmentalists like us, and, and I'm using that term to mean those who study the environment as well as those who want to protect it, to build partnerships with at least particular elements of the business community who recognize that the loss of biodiversity as well as climate change, and uh, we haven't talked about infectious diseases, but that, that you know that's a related problem, that, that these are problems that affect their bottom line on at least intermediate timescales. So insurance companies, for example. And those partnerships are, I think, crucial to developing the solutions, as opposed to working just with governments. Governments do what they think the businesses want them to do, and they have a much higher discount rate. So that's why Georg is a partner with us on this call as well. I think building those agreements will then allow us to convince governments that we're all in the same boat on this. So Georg, the final word goes to you. How do we solve the coordination game? How do we somehow simplify this additional element to an already complex agenda in ways that pragmatically create progress? Growing success through successful solutions by business across the value chain. There's a lot of innovation already taking place currently on green growth concept, on circularity and so forth. So growing such concepts further showcasing them more so they become the new dominant paradigm. I'm quite convinced, actually, this confluence of awareness now hitting markets everywhere, both on the risk side, but also on the opportunity side for sustainable future growth, is a huge entry point for a true paradigm shift, one could almost say, moving away from the industrial era linear conception 
towards a more resilient future oriented. And the current uncertainties around the world add a security dimension to that thinking as well. So I see a lot of good innovations happening, including around the value chain. So how to grow them across nations as well, across communities, that is certainly a, a promising way forward. In the end, we will need some form of state collaboration as well. So <laughs> the more that companies also push for favorable policies that protect and support natural services, obviously, the better. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for spending time with me today tackling this enormous, important and not so new problem, but I think new from the point of view of the awareness of business. And congratulations on the forthcoming paper that I, I personally found very enlightening. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I've been speaking to Pathadas Gupta, Simon Levin and Georg Kell about a forthcoming paper in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society entitled Economic Factors Underlying Biodiversity Loss that I think alerts us to a, an important new frontier in sustainability that business needs to deal with. If you have any questions or comments on the podcast, then please let us know. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. 